final fight week. And uh, we've been talking based on this verse, really. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, oh, that's good. Um, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we've been saying that the Christian life isn't just about saying, you know, put, your hand, put my hand up in a meeting, that's it, I'm a Christian now. There's actually an encouragement. Take hold of the eternal life. You, we've been made new creations, now let's take hold of that life and live it. Let's fight for what is ours by the right of Jesus having won it for us. So, we're talking about that, taking hold of the eternal life to which we were called. So, you may remember this game from last year, England versus Iceland. Euro 2016. There's some groans. There's some. Oh, yeah, I remember that. There's probably some people who don't like football uh, and who love it when England lose. Just, I don't know, out of spite or something. Um, enjoyed it. But basically, this is what happened. If you, if you didn't know, England, who, are, who were a team of multi millionaires, professionals, every need catered to, manager being paid several million pounds a year to manage the team versus Iceland, the part-timers. The manager is, you know, he's a part-time dentist. You know, it's that kind of level. And what happens, well, in David and Goliath's style, the giants of England were slain by the Davids of Iceland. And why? I'm preaching here. <laughs> because they take it mode. <laughs> because they came, the England team came, this is not the only reason, but they came, oh, obviously, we're professionals, we train every day, we're fitter, we're stronger, we're faster, we're more, you know, we've, we know who, we're the, we're the professionals. We've, everything we could possibly need has been given to us, but their mentality wasn't right. They weren't prepared in the correct way. They might have done some of the preparation, but actually, that preparation had been done by Iceland as well. They were fit. They weren't just, you know, they just rounded up 11 blokes from, you know, the couch potato competition. These were fit guys who were, yes, they're football, they're footballers. And so, it's a bit like a team knowing all the rules, having all the equipment, having every possible advantage they could do, and then, when it came time for the match, they weren't willing to put skin in the game, as they say. They weren't willing to sacrifice anything to win. So, oh, we're not winning. This, this should have been easy. It's not easy, so I'm just going to kind of give up and try and make it look like it's someone else's fault. Now, that's not all of them, and um, I can't speak directly to their mentality, but that's how it appeared. Sat on my sofa, thinking, man, there's some people... I'm, not even myself, but I know there's people who, if you, if you put them in that situation, they would be dying. They would like, be literally sacrificing their body in order to try and win that game. And you guys look like you're not bothered. We don't want to be like that. We have a value in this church of development. We want to build a culture of development where we encourage and challenge one another to grow in our faith and relationship with God. As a church, we will provide opportunities to train and improve both character 
and capabilities. It's important to keep growing. This morning, in our final fight series, we're looking at individualism versus discipleship. And I want to start again with a, a, a kind of a well done because there's some good discipleship stuff going on in this church. So I want to say well done to you if you're involved in that in any way. But I think, again, we can be better. And we want to be better so that as we grow as a church, people are coming into something that's healthy and effective rather than now we've got lots of people, we probably need to talk about discipleship. We don't want to talk about it now, so as we grow, we're doing it well. Now these might seem slightly odd to pit against one another, so I want to just expand a little bit on what I mean by individualism. I'm talking about the philosophical meaning of it, and what that means in language that's probably a bit more easy to understand is that everything that we do, all our actions, are for the benefit of me, my interests and my goals rather than for a broader group, for the church or for society as a whole. That's individualism. It's what's going to benefit me, that influences my actions. So that's what we mean by individualism. And by discipleship we mean this, or I mean this, following Jesus. With all actions, all behaviour being targeted towards his goals, and his interests. That's what I mean by discipleship, following Jesus and our actions being reflective of that. <clears throat> Development and discipleship only work well, they work best when we each take responsibility for ourselves. So there's an individualistic element to it. You, you have to take responsibility for yourself. I can encourage you to read your Bible. I, I can't be in your house at six in the morning and like turning the pages for you and showing them to you. Maybe for one of you I could do that, but obviously I can't be in everyone's house at the same time. There's an individual responsibility. Discipleship and development work best when we each take individual responsibility for ourselves and others within a community environment. So I might not be able to do that for everyone, but I can say to someone, I'm, I'm going to be up at six, I'm going to be reading my Bible and praying, if you'd like to join me, you can come to my house and do that. Or, I'm going to be at this place, I'm going to go for a walk, I'm going to pray, why don't you join me and do that? So, we can take responsibility for each other as well. The passage this morning that I want us to look at is, uh, in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 28. It's only a few verses, it'll come up on the screen as well. This is what's known as the Great Commission. It's Jesus talking to his disciples after he's risen from the dead and he's about to ascend into heaven and he says this to them. He says, uh, verse 18, Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm just going to read two of those verses again, 19 and the beginning of 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of 
the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus' command to his disciples was to go and make disciples. And if you don't catch this, it's kind of a circular command. Because he says, go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you and obey what I've commanded you. I'm commanding you to go and make disciples who are going to obey the things that I've commanded you, which is to go and make disciples who obey the command to go and make disciples, which is to obey the command. Do you understand? It's a cycle, it's a circular thing. The idea is the disciples are meant to reproduce disciples who reproduce disciples. To reproduce disciples. And on and on and on. And this morning we're going to look at the purpose, the price, and the population of discipleship. And they're probably not the greatest words to use, but they all begin with P and that's what I was going for. So we look at the purpose of discipleship, the price of discipleship, and the population of discipleship. Who's involved? So first things first, the purpose of discipleship. Well, from those verses that we read, Jesus said this, Go therefore and make disciples, baptising them, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe it. So, there's a teaching element, and there's an observing element. The purpose of discipleship is to transform lives. We like to say transforming lives is what we're part of. But it's to transform lives by both learning about God's word and applying the truth of God's word to our lives practically. It's no good just knowing all of the stuff. It has to work itself out into your life. James 1 says, don't just hear the word and deceive, so deceive yourselves, but do it. The Christian life has two directions. Into the world, in mission, the world being the Bible's language for everyone who's not in the church. Into the world, in mission, into the, the, the people that aren't saved. So we can see people saved. Into the world to save some. And through the world, on a, a journey towards greater and greater holiness. We like to say, don't we, that God is love. That's a, we love that verse. I mean, God is love. Fantastic verse. Uh, Mick Taylor, who some of you may know, wonderful Bible teacher, one of the most gentle men I've ever met, says, you know, it was the Beatles, though, who sang, all you need is love, 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 love. When the angels are singing around God, they're singing, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. In 1 Peter 1, 16, the Old Testament command is repeated. It says, be holy to the church. Be holy as I, your God, am holy. The purpose of discipleship is increasing in holiness. There's a narrative in the Bible that we should be gradually getting freer and freer from sin. It's not like on the day that you commit your life to Jesus, that's it, I'm dealt with, I'm completely perfect. In one sense, you're, you're completely justified before God and he loves you and he couldn't 
love you anymore, and nothing you do is going to increase that love. But there's a sense in which you're free from sin, and now everything's going to be, you're going to be completely freed. Perhaps day by day, perhaps week by week, there's going to be things that are taken off of you and increase your, oh, I thought I knew what freedom was, and, but now I'm free from that, and I, I had no idea. This is, this is living. And then two weeks later, oh my goodness, I can't I'm free from that as well. This, this is really living. And that should be our experience going on and on throughout our Christian lives. Now, I don't know how that's landed with you. Something that I've observed is that holiness seems to have become an undesirable quality for some within the church. Um, people use phrases like, I don't want to be all holy, holy, or I don't want to be the holy one, but maybe we should pray before we eat. Sorry, you do want to be all holy, holy, and you do want to be the holy one. That, that is a desirable quality. Now, I understand what people say when they say that. What they're saying is, I don't want to be this guy. <laughs> Ned Flanders, for those who don't know uh, Simpsons. And he's the Christian guy, and he's like, you know, I have a daily dose of vitamin church, and I only drink, you know, a glass of water with a, some brown bread on the side for dipping, you know, if I'm feeling sort of a bit really risky. So that's what people mean, is they don't want to be Ned, Ned Flanders. They don't want to be all, like, holier than thou, or you couldn't possibly approach me because I'm so holy. And I understand that. I think that's the right thing. You, you don't want to be unapproachable. Here's the conundrum. God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible says that he is in, in unapproachable light. He's, we can't, sin can't be in his presence. And yet he's so knowable. He's made himself knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, isn't it? That the God who is holy, holy... I can't even get near him. I can't, he can't even look on me because I'm sinful. And yet, he's come and he's, he's sought me out. He has approached me. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence through Jesus Christ. Because God has humbled himself. Psalm 18.35 says that his gentleness has made us great. What it means is his, he stooped down, God stooped down to make us great, to lift us up. He humbled himself in order to raise us up. Jesus, who was, as Dan said rightly, fully God, fully man. So he is, he's got that. He is God. And yeah, he spent time with sinners, tax collectors who were like the, you know, the cheats of the day. He spent time with prostitutes. But he wasn't tainted by them. He influenced them. When you put a light in a dark room, it's not like, oh, is the darkness gonna is the darkness gonna overpower this torch? No, the, the torch shines and it illuminates different parts of the room as you shine. How true of that, how true is that for us? When we're in a dark place, do we provide illumination or does our light get dimmer? Or oh, I don't want to be I don't want to be the holy one, so I'll just dim myself down a little bit. 
oh, they're telling jokes about that, you know, oh, I know one, I can be, I can be relevant here. What the world needs is not relevance, it needs something different. And the church and Christians are meant to provide that. And it's not, it's not in a judgmental way. We're not to say, well, you shouldn't be doing that because that's a terrible way of living. You, that's, that's not a winning strategy. A winning strategy is, obviously, you know, you're not a Christian, you're free to, you don't have to say exactly like this, you're free to live your life how you want. I know this is a better way. This is a better way. You, this is, I've tried this and I've seen the results. I've seen what God can do. So I want to encourage you, I've used most of my time on this, but that's fine. I want to encourage you, pursue holiness. Read the book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Fantastic book. Read the book, The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Fantastic book. Read your Bible and hear that God said, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Pursue holiness. How do we do that? Before we get on to that, I want to just say very quickly, I'm not talking about legalism either. Because that's the, legalism is like this thing where, oh well if you tell me what to do, well you'll put me under law, you're making it legalistic, this is not, you know, this isn't grace. <clears throat> Understand, all that I'm saying is in this context, that God has saved us by grace. We're saved by grace, not by works, nothing you can do to save yourself. We've made new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new person in Christ. You're not under condemnation. So this is not a, you should feel really terrible if you haven't been pursuing holiness. It's like, if you haven't been pursuing holiness, you should probably think, oh, that's something I should start doing because it sounds like a good idea and Jesus said I should do it. So I'm going to. We follow Jesus. We're set free to follow him without guilt and without shame. He's taken all of that on himself. Legalism isn't encouraging someone to do good things. It's telling them that doing those good things will save them. Understand that difference. We should be encouraging one another to do good things, to serve God well. To cut out the sin in our lives. But we know that those things don't save us. They're a grateful response, motivated by love for God. So the purpose of discipleship is following Jesus, growing in the likeness of Jesus to bring glory to God by doing so. The price of discipleship. Jesus said, follow me. Now, if you read the instances where he's talked to people, he says to Peter, you know, follow me. And he's like, okay, next down, I'm following you. Old life is gone. I'm following you. Being a follower of Jesus supersedes everything else in your life. It becomes your identity. Identity is a huge issue for us in our culture. How do you identify yourself? If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your primary identifier. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. That is the thing that defines you most. The price of discipleship varies from person to person. 
the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I followed all the commandments, what, what should I do? And Jesus says to him, all that you possess, sell it and give the money to the poor. And he's like, oh. he goes away very sad. Because his heart it wasn't really in it. Now, that might not be the challenge for you. The challenge might be, Jesus, I want to follow you I mean, completely. What does that mean? Well, it means giving up this thing. Well, it means not doing that. It means denying this aspect of yourself. Discipleship is costly and it's hard. Steph Liston, who's a wonderful uh, preacher, um, really encouraging, he did a series on, called it Running Partners, Discipleship Relationships. It's worth listening to if you search Steph Liston Running Partners, uh, you'll find that. But he made four helpful observations of some of the challenges that we face in the UK particularly towards discipleship. We have an individualistic culture. We all want to be the hero of our own story. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, so, I won't go into any more of that. But we've got an individualistic culture. Generally, it's cold. So it's like social uh, economics or whatever. People have studied different cultures, and if it's a cold culture, people tend to not go and see each other as much. Because you get home, you're warm, it's cold outside, can't be bothered to go back out. Summer, that seems a bit odd, but in the winter, I'm sure we can all, I've got home from work, I'm in the galaxy then, so oh, I'll just cancel. So, that's just, that's the culture we live in, it's cold, just be aware of it and think, am I not going because it's a bit cold outside? Because that's not a good excuse. Um, sometimes it's a good excuse if there's loads of snow but we're no longer a religious society it's not normal to be in a discipleship relationship with someone where looking at traditional discipleship teacher disciple now I'm advocating a more peer type thing we're discipling one another we're helping one another but we're not in that society anymore. if you said oh I'm going to meet my discipler People were like, that's pretty weird. Now, people love discipleship, they just don't call it discipleship. If you said, I'm going to meet my mentor, they'd be like, oh, that's fantastic. You're really, you're really sort of driving to get the best out of yourself. I'm going to see my life coach. People love it, and I'm not saying anything about mentors and mentees or life coaching. I'm just saying, people love discipleship, but they just don't want to call it that. We are outrageously busy. That is a cultural phenomenon that is sweeping the world. We are outrageously busy. I can remember a few years ago Andy showing us uh, his diary once on the big screen. And thought, oh my goodness, where does he sleep? Um, in a bed. Really? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But I'm sure that's true of all of us. If I said, right, map out your day for me, map out your week, outrageously busy. Outrageously busy. And I recommend another book to you, Kevin DeYoung, Crazy Busy, fantastic book. It's quite short. The title says, A Mercifully Short Book for a Really Big Problem. Um, but he says it, one of the things he says now is we're kind of meant to be busy particularly as Christians, there's a world of people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we should be busy. There's lots to do. 
There's lots of needs to be met, but we need to make sure we're busy with the right things. Because if you don't choose what's going to make you busy, stuff will just invade your life. There's a, a good film called Remember the Titans. This is a, a, a picture from... There's a bit where they, they're training and they're trying to get a particular thing right and it's not going right. And the coach says to them, we're going to stay out here all night because champions pay the price. Champions pay the price. Now, it's costly, discipleship. Champions pay the price, but they also get to be champions. So, I want you to ask yourself the question, in my Christian life, do I want to be England, or do I want to be Iceland? Do I want to be a champion for God? Am I willing to pay the price to put in the hard graft so that when the time comes, I'm not found wanting? Now, what the cost is for you, it might be different. It might be getting up early. That might be a real cost for you. It might be staying up late. If you're not a night owl, it might be opening up to trust someone. I've never shared this with anyone before. But this is, this is my big issue. I, I, if I see a bakery, I can't not buy a cake. You know, and by sharing that, maybe that diffuses the issue. Now, I've tri chosen that as a slightly trivial example, perhaps. Um, it might be denying yourself a personal freedom. I've never said this to anyone before. It's hypothetical. But if, you know, I know if I, if I stay up after my wife's gone to bed, I know what channels I'm going to watch. I know what sort of film I'm going to pick. It might, so I'm going to deny myself the personal freedom of I can go to bed whenever I like because I'm a grown-up and I'm going to go to bed at the same time as my wife or I'm not going to watch TV after my wife's gone to bed. As a general principle within marriage, I would encourage going to bed at the same time just as a... That's completely unrelated and a freebie, but anyway. Um, <laughs> the purpose of following Jesus is to be more like Jesus. For God's glory, the price is personal sacrifice. But the reward is sharing in the joy of Jesus' victory. When you're set free from sin... You know, walk past the bakery, didn't go in. I'm free. The bakery thing isn't an issue for me. That's the price. It's like it's costly. It's hard work. What's the population of discipleship? As I said, we are in an individualistic culture. We want to be the hero of our own story. You can notice this. Maybe you think, oh, I'm not really like that. When we, I was going to read out some Bible passages and see, get people to raise their hands, but I'm not going to do that. When you read a Bible passage, though, and it says, you, be of good cheer. No worries. Particularly the epistles are written to the church. It starts off to the church in Corinth. And then later on it says, don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Oh, it doesn't want me to be ignorant. No, no, no. I don't want you all to be ignorant. But we personalise it, don't we? When you look at the songs that we sing, 
and I'm not, not in any particular, I, I love the songs we sang this morning, but lots of the songs, this is my desire to worship you. That's great, it should be our desire to worship you, and we'll probably sing that song again at the end, and I want you to sing it with full gusto, because it is your desire. This is our desire to worship you. There's a corporate element to stuff that we, we don't really enjoy very often. Lord, we give you our hearts, not I give you mine. I know lyrically it's easier sometimes to use the eye and stuff. And if it tickles something that we like. Oh, it's about me and God, my relationship with God. And as I said, you are responsible for your relationship with God. You are responsible for that. But there's this corporate thing that we miss out on so often. One of our songs, we sang it, I think, last week or two weeks ago, and the lyrics were changed from where we changed it to a corporate song, but then we were singing it back the other way. It's just made me laugh because it's like it's written up there but we're still singing it the other way anyway I'm, I'm the hero of my story my life is about my journey with God and what's good for me that's a mindset that is around I want to say this to you you can't make it on your own you can't I don't care who you are how good you are how capable you think you are you can't make it on your own and I'm saying you quite deliberately because I'm talking to all of you. I, I can't make it on my own either, but I'm saying you can't make it on your own. Let that land with you. Christians in the Bible are described as sheep, not lone wolves. There's a reason God didn't say, you are the individualistic animal of my pasture. We're the sheep of his pasture. There's a lie that's put out that says, and I'm talking broadly about the whole of life, if you, everywhere, everywhere this is pushed out, if you try a bit harder, if you just grind a little bit more, if you just put in a few more hours, then all of your dreams will come true and your life will be a success. Google, uh, go onto YouTube and search motivational speeches. So if you can, you know, when everyone else is sleeping, you've got to be grinding, you've got to be working harder. When everyone else is giving up, you've got to be the one who's pushing on and going, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more. So that you can do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it. And often those speeches are given by famous people. There's a quote from a guy called Bo Burnham, who is a comedian who's quite rude, apparently. I, I've just seen this quote of his, but I thought it was good. But he says this, Taylor Swift, who's a famous pop star, telling you to follow your dreams is like a lottery winner telling you to liquidise your assets and buy lottery tickets. Just because someone got really lucky and hit the jackpot doesn't make them like the authority on how to succeed in life. And the worst thing about that lie is not, it's not really saying try harder. What it's saying is you're not good enough. That's really what it says. It's saying you're on your own, you can't do it and you're not good enough, so you better try harder. On the surface it's about, oh, you're gonna be successful, you're gonna be happy. Actually, it's about something much deeper. And it's an attempt to isolate you, isolate me, 
isolate us from each other. To get you on your own. See, you really can't do it. And no one's helping you. Well, because you said, I'm going to do this by myself. You've isolated yourself and now no one's helping you. You think, man, I really need some help here. Why is no one helping me? You said you didn't want any help. Now, Jesus was isolated on our behalf. He suffered and died alone. I know there were people crucified with him, but his friends, his disciples, Peter, who said, I'll die for you. They'll have to kill me before I deny you. The little girl says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? No, I've never even heard of the guy. His best friends, one of his closest friends, betrays him. Guy he spent years living with, sharing meals, betrays him. Jesus was isolated. He suffered alone so that we don't have to. So that we can be one into our family. The reality is we do all have a uniqueness and a, a gift from God, gifting from God that's valuable and important. And you can be successful with that and it can be recognised and celebrated and cherished. But the way to do that is in the context of the local church family. Your gift most flourishes when it's celebrated and utilised by other people. I was planning to say, so Hannah's fantastic singer, great worship leader. Lewis, really good. But if Hannah was on her own, you know, none of us have turned up this morning. Hannah's standing there, she's got a microphone, she's you know, singing her heart out. It's like, what, what good, you know, that's fantastic for Hannah. You know, I'm sure she'd really enjoy it because she likes singing. But <laughs> it's no benefit to the rest of us, is it? Gifts are most valued, most enjoyed, most fulfilled in the context of community. You can't do it on your own because we're not meant to do it on our own. We're meant to do it in community. Discipleship look like in Christ first? Well, I'm going to very quickly talk about four areas, maybe five, but I'll be very quick. We'll talk a little bit more about this at the family meeting, which is coming up on Friday. We're going to be using this idea, 3, 12, 72, and a large crowd we won't really talk about very much. But this is modelled on Jesus' pattern of discipleship. Jesus had a large crowd that he taught. He, he spoke and lots of people came to listen to him. Then he had a smaller group, still quite a big group, 72, other numbers are thrown around, but 72 is uh, accepted, which he sent down the mission. 72, okay. You're my guys and girls, off you go, on mission, do these things. Then he had the 12. These were the close, this is the close circle. People he shared life with, they ate together a lot, they, they talked about things. When he taught, the 12 would get to go <coughs> over dinner. What did you really mean by that, Jesus? And he'd be like, oh, you guys should get it by now. But he was able to explain a bit better. And then even within that 12 closest, he had the three, Peter, James, and John. When he goes to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, he says no one else will come in except for Peter, James, and John. When he goes to 
pray on the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes Peter, James and John, and they all fall asleep. But um, he still took them anyway. Um, so if you're people who <laughs> you're in a discipleship relationship with let you down, you can say to them, can you even pray for one hour? Um, but Jesus experienced that as well. And then even within that three, there's another one. That Jesus' relationship with John, John was known as the disciple Jesus loved. I mean, that's a title to have, isn't it? But then Peter had a slightly different relationship with Jesus as well, because Peter was the one who was like, you're, you're the guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to build the church. So there was different dynamics to the relationship. But we're going to talk about 3, 12, and 72 primarily. To say this, you should personally be investing in your relationship with God. You need to get with a running partner, partners. You need a three. It doesn't have to be three. Two to five. That's the, the sort of number of people you're looking at. You need a three. I need a three. You need some people who you're going to be closer with and you can say, this is the issue I'm really struggling with. Can you pray for that for me? And can you ask me about it? You need to be in a 12. You need to be part of an explore group. They're going to be taking on a much more significant role in the life of the church. as part of what we're going to be talking about in the family meeting. Be there. In the autumn, they're going to be a key part of our church life, not just something we do. You need to be part of an explore group. And the 72 is this. We're the church together on mission. Do you need to do this? If you're asking yourself that question, yes, you do. You need to be in a three. You need to be in a 12. You need to come on Sunday mornings and hear what's being taught. Why? Because you are not the best qualified person to identify your areas of growth. I am not the best identified person to, best person to identify my areas of growth. You want to know where I should be growing in my relationship with God? You ask my wife. That's the person who really knows. So we talk... Meg and I, we say, what? how can I be growing? What can I be doing this? We've started using this thing, which is, I'm going to finish with this really. This is a deck of cards, but each card has a question on it. So how do you take responsibility for your relationship with God? We ask each other these questions. Cut the deck, ask a question. Find something that you can do. Now, I'm not saying Megan's my three, because that's a different thing. I need other people around me. You need to be in a 3, a 12, and a 72. The purpose of following Jesus is to be more like Jesus for God's glory. The price is personal sacrifice. The reward is sharing in the joy of Jesus' victory and finding the true purpose and meaning in our role in his story. The mission of the church, as I said, has two key directions. Into the world to preach the gospel and through the world in increasing holiness. We're called to follow God and be holy as God is holy. Holiness is a desirable thing. Ask yourself, am I desiring to be holy? Am I willing to pay the price? Am I working for God's plan or mine? Am I involved in every level of discipleship?